Meditations on Mark is a production of the University Church in Oxford. For more information, visit universitychurch.ox.ac.uk Welcome to the second of our Meditations on Mark. As we explore the conflict and controversy which attends the first few chapters of Mark's Gospel. Meditations on Mark, the second podcast, Binding the Strong Man. Mark chapter 3, verse 20. Then Jesus went home, and the crowd came together again, so that they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to restrain him, for people were saying, He has gone out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebul, and by the ruler of the demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but his end has come. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then, indeed, the house can be plundered. Truly, I tell you, people will be forgiven for their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said, he has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside asking for you. And he replied, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Thirty years ago, an American peace activist called Chad Myers wrote a commentary on the Gospel according to St. Mark. Its title was taken from the passage of Scripture which we've just heard, Binding the Strong Man. Myers was dissatisfied with the way in which preachers and New Testament scholars read the Gospel through the lens of inherited layers of tradition and in the light of social conventions which were far removed from the world of the New Testament. The perspective of a largely middle-class educated elite in a university town was light years away from the perspective offered in Mark's Gospel. We've learned to read Mark's Gospel as the story of our salvation. We read it as a religious text. And yet Myers read this story as a text which revealed that the foundations of the world were shaking. He read it as a profoundly political text. 
At the beginning of Mark's Gospel, Jesus announces that the time is fulfilled, that the kingdom of God is at hand, and this proclamation provokes a response. Those who live at the margins of society, those who are simply desperate, the broken-hearted and the abused, the poor and the powerless, the sick and those who know all too well the sheer precariousness of our lives. These are the people who populate the first chapters of Mark's Gospel. As Myers puts it, Mark's story of Jesus stands virtually alone among the literary achievements of antiquity for one reason. It is a narrative for and about the common people. Mark's drama of Jesus portrays the world of first-century Palestine from below. It breaks the culture of silence of the poor by making them, fishers and farmers, the lame and the leprous, the central subjects and protagonists of the gospel of the kingdom. These are the ones who hear in the proclamation of the good news an echo of the prophecy of Isaiah the promised Messiah who is anointed to proclaim good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release for the captive, and to comfort all those who mourn. These are the people with whom Jesus identifies. These are his brothers and sisters. And yet, those who are strong, those who are powerful, those who benefit from the exploitation of others, such as the religious elites, they are threatened by the proclamation of this good news. And so the first few chapters of Mark's Gospel are dominated by conflict and controversy. Remember that right at the beginning of the Gospel, John the Baptist proclaimed, After me comes a one who is more powerful or stronger than me. In Mark's imagination, there unfolds this great conflict where Jesus the Messiah confronts the power of Satan. Like a thief in the night, Jesus comes and binds the strong man so that he can basically ransack his house and recover everything that has been lost. This is demonstrated powerfully in the succession of miracles and healings which take place in the first few chapters of the Gospel. People are restored to health, the hungry are fed, the demons are confronted and put to flight. Those who are paralysed by their past are invited to throw off their burdens and to walk tall again. These life-giving miracles reveal the cruelty and double-dealing, the hardness of heart of a religious elite whose actions and beliefs only serve to abuse the poor and dispossessed, already overwhelmed by the principalities and powers of this world. Now when we hear the language of powers and principalities, of demons and possession. We may struggle with this kind of discourse. What does it mean? How do we make sense of it? Indeed, it's perhaps no accident that the passage begins with people accusing Jesus himself of being out of his mind or beside himself, suggesting that he is possessed by Beelzebul. And so the controversy ensues as Jesus is subjected to all the opprobrium and cruelty usually heaped on those who suffer with mental health difficulties. One of the characteristics of religious discourse, particularly those elements which are informed by the apocalyptic tradition, as so much of Mark's language and imagery is, 
is a way in which it seeks to disrupt and unmask reality. The kingdom of God is at hand. We glimpse its promise and its potential. And yet when we look around, we still see a veil of tears. We still see a world of suffering. If anything, the realities of our world suggest that Satan remains unbound. There is an ever-present tension between that promised future and our experience of reality. We find ourselves living in between these two worlds. Can we trust in the light of that promised future, even though we seem to live in the face of ever greater challenges and threats? Or are we to suffer the same accusation levelled at Jesus in our Gospel reading? Are we deluded? Myers argued in his commentary that Mark's Gospel was written at the height of the first Jewish revolt precisely to help the earliest Christian community to wrestle with these questions. If you think this little passage in chapter 3 is strange, then have a look at chapter 13 in Mark's Gospel. The little apocalypse, as it is often called, is very strange indeed. It speaks of wars and rumours of wars, of messianic pretenders, of nation rising against nation, of persecution, the abomination of desolation, and the impending destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. It speaks of a world in freefall, a world where you are not sure what to believe anymore or who to believe in. It's a world where it is harder to distinguish between what is real and what is false, between good news and fake news. The poet T.S. Eliot once observed that human beings cannot bear very much reality. And yet if we attend to Mark's story as it unfolds, we discover that the call of discipleship is accompanied by a curious process of disillusionment. The disciples confront their demons. Their illusions are gradually stripped away. No seats of honour for James and John. The story ends in the betrayal of Judas, the denial of Peter, and the desertion of everyone. For Mark, discipleship is not so much a comfort as a challenge. It is demanding, it is costly, and it is real. In following the Son of Man, the human one, amidst the precarious lives of the poor and powerless, we learn again how to be human in an inhumane world. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Remember that however stark Mark's message may be, love unillusioned, is not love disenchanted. As we read Mark's Gospel, 
we are stripped of our illusions in order that our eyes may discover anew the revelation of divine love. Thanks for listening. The Gospel was read by Elizabeth Dutton. The meditation was offered by me, Will Lamb. Music and sound design by Nicholas Alexander. <laughs>